welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Welcome back, everyone, to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Shane. Wait. (laughs) Go do do it. it. Okay, I'm Shane, and my pronouns are he, him. Awesome. So we are back with Shane for his proud professional episode. Today, we'll get to know a little bit more about him and his experiences as a queer slp so shane tell us a little bit more about you so my name is shane kimball of course and i am a neonatal therapist so speech language pathologist by trade and i work in a level three NICU in houston texas a big part of my job is developmental care in the NICU and the experience of the family and attachment and bonding with infants I also have a lovely passion towards instrumental evaluations of infants, uh, specifically fees, is something that I really enjoy doing and have been able to teach multiple hospitals and their NICUs to use that modality. And I've been working for eight years or so now, and I've worked in outpatient pediatric inpatient rehab. And now I've been in the NICU for a while. And I've been in Houston for about four years. And I'm originally from, I'm going to say the name, and this is not a joke. I'm from Simsport, Louisiana, specifically Yellow Bayou. So just to give you a reference of where we may go this evening is not Yellow Bayou, Yellow Bayou. Yellow Bayou. Can you spell that? Um, it is yellow, but it is not said as yellow bayou. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so I, I want to know about yellow bayou. You said it wrong. You added the O. Did I? Yeah. Yellow, it's, it's, yellow it's bayou. It's almost like old I yellow. I want to know about old, it. Instead of old yellow, like old yellow. It's old yellow. Yeah, yellow okay. bayou. And Tell us about your life in yellow bayou. So I'm from central south louisiana from avoyles parish if you know anyone from louisiana our parish is more important than our town and i'm from a very small small area within a parish with really no big city around i had a piggly wiggly in our town that we could get groceries from the nearest walmart was a good 40 minutes away the nearest civilization the nearest mall was over an hour and I grew up in some sport, essentially, in this small town and going to a very small school with my parents. And I have one sister. So for me, this is such a fun story to tell because it really is that stereotypical like small town boy, like goes to big city, realizes himself in his dreams. <laughs> and it's kind of sad also because... I look back at the experience that I had as a child and I have some really great moments and moments in time, but I also have all the hardships that came with growing up on a bayou, growing up on a a gay on a bayou. Next on TLC. (laughs) Next on TLC, please. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just couldn't Uh, help myself. (laughs) um, 
I, oh my god I, that i think that's my new favorite joke so far i love that um and so in my community no one really knew of anyone that was gay if they did this was an association with hiv aids this was association with drugs this was an association with deviance. This isn't a difference at all. This isn't any part of, this is only something disordered. That traditional sense of, this isn't right. And I may know somebody and that person has things that I associate with. And that's kind of how I grew up, is not ever, and I feel a lot of gay people have a similar situation. I had no role model, no positive role model. I had no one and even kids my age, I was one of the only known gay people in our school, which I was forced to come out. We could talk about that later. But I went to a super conservative school my whole life, never saw a positive representation of who I may be. And it's funny because the first role model that I can think of in time was Will and Grace. And thank thank God for the media, because Will and Jack were probably, uh, from when I can remember, two of the first people that I saw on TV who were gay on TV were like who I thought that I may be at that time. And Jack and Will were two, they were different. They weren't the same person. They were not the same personality. They were two different gay people. And that was really exciting for me. That was a moment in time that I realized, and it took Will and Grace to bring this forward, but I realized like maybe I can be gay and I don't have to fake it for years to make everybody happy. Maybe I can actually have a lifestyle where or a world that I'm happy. Right. It makes me think about like now we're inundated with the internet and all these like social media apps. Even if you're in these distant places, you can find positive role models online. But back when you were young, which I'm assuming was maybe the early 90s, yeah, that kind of thing is just so vital. And it was just so rare at the time. Mm-hmm. Like we had Will and Grace and we had Ellen, right? Yeah. That's it. The end. So baby queers out there, imagine if you had two sources of role models as a young person. Imagine being a person of color who is also gay or someone right? who's trans. Not, it, I mean, I, I could not imagine. Like, who would I even go near as a role model where, and that, I, not to be kind of cliche, but RuPaul was great for the time of RuPaul and that moment of time. And then thinking about the ballroom scene in Harlem and all of these other things, there were some instances of people, but it's very hard to find someone who's like you that's a role model whenever I was younger. Who were y'alls? So when this is, you know, we're getting deep here. When I was in high school, before I knew I was gay, I immerse myself in music of queer people, not even realizing that I was gravitating towards it. So I loved Culture Club. Mm. I loved George Michael. He's my boyfriend. Prince, which I know that technically he's not queer, but he was to me. Katie Lang. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was really big into her. So I think that's where, you know, subconsciously I, I got a lot of role models. What about you, Hector? I can't think of any positive ones. 
I remember it was huge when the first Queer Eye came out, and it was called Queer Eye for the Straight. For the straight That's right. That was huge in my life as far as like, and it was like almost like, <gasps> you know, um, I still cry at every episode as I do now, but it was just kind of groundbreaking. It's so weird to admit this, but like, I knew more about representation through pornography than I did through any sort of mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Like, my ideas of queerness stemmed from pornography. It was just one of those things where I didn't have, because I'm not even coming from a place of like shaming sex work or anything like that. I'm very sex positive. But as a child, I didn't have any role models. I just knew it was all about sex. Yeah. And so that's kind of where my mind was. So that's kind of where I, I'm coming from with that. I think that's a great point because I think back into my life, where did I learn the bulk of my knowledge? It was from porn. And that's exactly what it was. And I didn't have any other resource. And I think that's what you were alluding to also, Hector's. There was no other resource for us to use. There was nothing else. Our parents weren't, were, if they were having the sex talk with us, it wasn't the sex talk we needed. And if they were to have some type of queer sex talk with us, they wouldn't know the first thing. We probably still knew more than them at that time. And having to navigate that with such uncertainty and then looking at pornography and being like, this is what gay sex is supposed to be like. Clearly, it's supposed to be this dominant submissive. It's supposed to be this like act of passion and pseudo violence. And it's a very set the stage situation. And as a kid, you think, is, is this what I'm supposed to be? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Nobody else does anything different. And this was what I'm continuing to see. So that means I need to be I'm doing something wrong, or I'm not even doing anything yet. But like, what am I supposed to do with this? What that makes you think is like getting back to Will and Grace, it sounds like that was your one opportunity to see what queer people could look like outside the bedroom. Absolutely. And for the time, it was so refreshing for me. It was still something, Will and Grace wasn't something that was naturally on in our household either. That, and I remember watching Sex in the City at night, like these were not things that that I would ever watch with my parents or that would be allowed for us to watch or be very kosher for us to watch um, at that age. And that's when I was still discovering because also there was instances like Sex in the City was also a pretty big impact on me from the media perspective, which is where I went to for the most of my information because I didn't have anywhere else to go. And with that, I think that growing up on Yellow Bayou was particularly hard for me because it caused me to have so many things that I had to undo as I got into adulthood. So many things that I built, so many boxes to unpack, so many things to reconsider, so many things that I needed to work through that this set the foundation of from when I was a kid. So being the only gay person around, period, then you being no as solely as a gay person and not a person or a human is something that's very difficult. And with my experience coming out with my family, you know, that was met with a lot of negativity. And for someone who I felt that I was already fragile and discovering what was going on, and then 
with my parents and with my friends, I did not get to choose the time I came out. Both were determined for me. And I had to deal with that also of not being ready to come out and being forced to come out and then getting hit with the not best responses at the time with my family, which my, my friends luckily came really in for the, the salvation there and the savior. But after I came out, I'm sorry. How old were you? I was uh, 17 years old at that time. So this was the real time that I was attempting to come to myself, uh, attempting to figure out who I am. And then I was hit with this roadblock that I wasn't ready for yet. I, I didn't have the resources or the stability yet to go through that. So with that instance, I, I my family and I, was, we, we had a hard time. And I'd say that together, we did. We had a hard time. I was very rebellion at that time too, because my parents did not respond how I, the dream of me to respond. And in my parents' defense, again, my parents did not have any understanding of what a gay person is besides, oh, well, drugs, uh, AIDS, that's what's going to happen. He's going to die. And that's, that's what being gay means. And I think if there's, if I'm speaking for my parents, if there's one thing that they've learned that I taught them is I can be a pretty good human most days. I can be a decent person. I can be an active member in society and I'm gay. And I think that that, I don't want to say this in spite of them made me work harder. Uh, but I think of all the difficult times that I've had coming out and growing up where I did really set the backbone, though I had a lot of stuff to unpack. It really made me unapologetic and it really made me advocate for myself and others who may not have the same opportunity. Me being loud, me being aggressive, me being forward, which are traits of my personality, are built from that foundation. I was a very shy, meek boy, and I was forced into a different personality, which I've grown to embrace now. And that leads us to where we are today. (laughs) Would you say going back, do you ever go back? And is it the same feeling of like response that you would get now? compared to then? For the most part, I think under breath, absolutely. I go back home to visit my parents and that's it. um, I see some of my aunts and uncles at times and almost every one of my family members, I have a fundamental belief difference with the exception of a few. So that within itself is a, a problem, but they're not my responsibility to educate. And it's, it's, I can't take that world of, I can't take all of that. I can't, I physically, I mentally cannot take that in. So whenever I do see people that I do know have fundamental differences than me, I think you're a person first. We may not see eye to eye. This is just the situation of uh, happen, a circumstance of seeing each other. I cannot take the, the hate around from where I'm at in Louisiana and bring that all into myself. And most of the people in that area are very, uh, are homophobic and of course have no idea or very racist. And, and it's all of that built into one. And then here I come, my gay ass, like coming back home. And I really don't do much when I go home besides I see my family and I see my parents. And I really have washed my hands with where I'm from because why would I ever go back to somewhere that I have such 
great memories, but also some of the worst times of my life and the lowest points of my life that was caused by other people's hate. It wasn't because I was gay that I was sad or had moments of depression, of uncertainty, and had nowhere to go, no one who really understood me. It, was, it wasn't that. It was how people responded to me in a crisis or how easily people were ready to grab and be egocentric about my gayness. Oh, well, you know what? I'm kind of mad that you didn't tell me that you didn't tell me yourself that you were gay. And I thought we were better friends than that. Like, could you imagine someone saying to you? Oh, yeah, I I had that too. I think that's very common response for the majority to not realize that they're always egocentric. It's always the minority position to, you know, explain themselves to the majority. Uh, So yeah, I've had it. Natalie, did you? I have. And it actually, you're, what you're talking about, Shane, reminds me of something that happened to me when I came out was that a family member of mine was at a party and people were badmouthing me. And that person came home and started yelling at me and getting angry with me about being that I was embarrassing. You know, it wasn't that, oh, these people are terrible and I'm going to defend you against these people at a party, I'm going to get angry at you for making me be embarrassed because these people are talking about you. That was the late 90s. You know, honestly, when I go to my hometown now and I'm, I'm here more often, so I, you know, it used to be that I was very similar to you, Shane, where I was just going to visit family. I wasn't going to do a whole lot. But I, I've noticed over time that, that my small town has changed. And, you know, actually, when I go there and I drive down the street every now and then I see a pride flag out or I see a couple together out at dinner and I'm thinking, wow, like my little conservative small town still has conservative, but it seems more mixed than it was when I was a kid. Yeah, it happens to every like every queer person we talk to, like it, it, it happens. It's, it's part of it. And in high school, whenever, so a long story short, just to give some background, uh, in high school, I left my MySpace open at one point and some, a friend read a message, learned I was gay, told the whole school. Oh, um, no. So, A, there's that. So the day of my reckoning, uh, the I went to school and everybody knew but me. How big and was your school? Uh, my school is probably is uh, at a high school. There was maybe four hundred kids, three hundred something kids. My class, my high school class, was like seventy five. Okay, uh, so not it's it's a small hey, town school, hey, but everybody knew. And then people were telling me of like, oh, well, do you know that everybody knows? And like that's that. And at this point in time, I've only truly chosen to come out to myself and to my two best friends, Taylor and Brooke. At that point who I trusted and who didn't tell anyone and were my rock for coming out and were my only good experience that I had coming out. That was it. And then I told them, and then this was maybe a few, two, three, four weeks later, here I was. And what do I do? I had no help. I had, I had no one. And it was hard. It was, it was hard. It was really hard. It was tough. It was draining. It was so much uncertainty. And it's it was so sad. It was 
it was terrifying. And there I was with my few friends who I told before, and then my friends who knew now that were fine with it. And yes, I, I had some, it still is a conservative school and it's still a very conservative land where I'm from, Louisiana, South Louisiana. But boy, was that tough and was something that I did not have any weapons to use. I had nothing but scream, run, and hide and hope that like nothing bad happens to me, which I'm very fortunate that I didn't have anything blatantly, violently homophobic, uh, I guess we can say. I, I didn't have that. And I was just trying to survive until college. And I knew when it came to college, things were going to get better. And I just had to make it to that point to get out of where I'm from. And that was the only light that I held on to. If I didn't have that light, I I don't know what I would have done. Uh, absolutely, I, I, I would not have known what to do. And luckily, I went away for college, still in Louisiana, but is where I really met my first queer friends and was like, wow, like these people think like me sometimes and they have some insights to things that I don't know about. And like a gay bar with like a, a group of gay people. What? What? And it wasn't until that moment in time that I realized that the world was much bigger than what I thought and that I could find friends in places and that there were more of me. And for so long, I felt like that there was no one else, that it was just me and this is how it was, that there was such few gay people in the world. And that we were all suffering and we we're all going through these these terrible things. Because when you from when we were growing up, I have never heard of a positive coming out story. And it's just such a rite of passage and it's something that we we go through and it's it's tough. It's tough for all of us. It is it's at no point an ever easy moment. So if you have a friend, feeling that they're non non members of the LGBT, if you're an ally, and just know that this is something that's for some people may be able to talk about it a little bit easier, but man, some of these things are so hard for us to talk about. And uh, because essentially when we talk about it, then we're reliving it because we're just playing those negative memories in our head and thinking about how could the people I love do that to me? How could someone who said that they love me so much care so little about me? Like how hurtful it is to go back and think about that as an adult. Now, do you guys feel any similar to that? Yep. I mean, <laughs> like, uh, uh, I remember for me, um, I mean, I still have a straight relationship with my dad. So um, that's where that's at. So, you know, those things, that trauma stays with you. And so it's hard because on one end, my mom came from a space of, you know, like just fear. You know, she was so worried for my well-being. And so that was one thing. And now we have a great relationship because look at me now. And then my dad was just awful. You know, um, I never heard him use the F word ever until I came out. Oh. So I knew and there was some intentionality to that. And, and that, that hurt me so much um, to the point that, you know, even with like some sort of like conversation, I still, carry that trauma with me so yeah i'm i'm right there with you with that like how but i'm like oh you had to see it you had to like that's where you're at that's where you were at at that time too 
um, it's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I have a happy coming out story. Oh, good. Do do tell. <laughs> so, um, if you listen to my proud professional episode, you'll know that my mom had a really hard time with it. But I don't think I've mentioned my father, um, who has passed away uh, nine years ago next month. I remember as a kid, like thinking that my father was real, a real homophobe. He was kind of cranky, kind of grouchy, gruff. And I remember him one time saying that if any of his children were ever gay, that he would disown them. So I really hesitated to come out to my dad because I was scared. But then there, there came a point where I just had to tell him. So I decided that I needed to tell him at a time where I could make a quick getaway. Very smart. <laughs> I, was in, I was in college at the time and it was after winter break. And so I was like, okay, it's a four hour drive to my college. So I'll tell him when we kind of get close to my college so that if it goes really shitty, I can just like get out um, and be like, sayonara. Rolls out of the car. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Duck and cover. Um, So, yeah. So uh, we're, we're in the car and I say to my dad, I have something to tell you. I'm really nervous about it, but I wanted you to know that I'm in love and it's with a woman and I'm a lesbian. And he said, I just want you to be happy. I love you. And I'm so glad that you're in love. Wow. And I just was like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's just like a big release. I didn't expect it. I was so afraid. And never once did he ever say anything that made me feel like less. Mm. And I'm so grateful. Yeah. What a good thing for you, especially, you know, since your dad has passed. What a lasting great memory to have with your dad how how important that has to be to you yeah it made a a huge difference because a lot of people in my family struggled it means so much to have even just one person in your family say you know what i'm just glad that you're happy yeah so we got to this you know High school, you were waiting. And like most, like I was the same way. I was waiting to get out of my small town. I was waiting for college. When you went to college, did you already know you wanted to be an SLP? Or had you been exploring other options? So I went into college having no idea what an SLP was. Right. (laughs) Period. Trick question. (laughs) So my roommate at the time was a communication science and disorder major and she was taking the intro class and it counted as an elective. And of course I was like, yeah, I'll take a class with my friend. Right. So I took the intro to con B course and I was like, oh, this is fun. There's a second one that also counts as an elective. So I'm going to take that one too. And then I was like, well, I'm very interested in learning some more about this. And so then I declared myself a major and I was figuring out, well, not everything in the SLP world is very enticing to me. How much am I invested in this? And I got to shadow the first SLP I shadowed. Her name is Courtly Gonsling and she is a pediatric feeding therapist. And I went to shadow her and I saw her do feeding therapy. And I was like, oh, wait, this is what you do too? Okay. Like sign me up for this gig. Like this is 
this is interesting to me. And I, Kai, I don't know if she knows that. Uh, I hope she listens to this and hears that. She was kind of the make or break moment for me to realize that this is something that I'm really interested in. And I have no, I always joke about this. I, I have no story. I have no cousin who had a stroke or a sister with a cleft lip and palate. I, I have no story other than that I was just interested genuinely interested in the topics in the science and so then there it so began and I went to grad school mm. and I continued on that journey from being an undergrad being so closely or so in wrapped up in, in swallowing and dysphagia so then I went to grad school and I continued that journey into okay I think that I want to do feeding and swallowing in pediatrics, and I want to eventually make it to the point to where I'm doing infants and I'm seeing kids in the NICU. And so being a male SLP in that subgroup of our field is very far and few between. Uh, to give a few examples, my favorite thing is when I go to ASHA and I'm in sessions, and they this has happened, I kid you not, at least five times in my life where the speaker stops to say, oh, and there's a male here. And I, I'm, I'm just like, oh, great. Like, here we go again. Yeah, it's me. Hello. Local gay here for learning. Okay. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Right. Uh, and to be to, the funnier one is I went to a, uh, it was a neonatal and infant fees course at Baylor where I was the only male and they turned both of them, the, the male bathrooms, it's a female overflow bathrooms. And I didn't have a bathroom. So I, went <laughs> and I said, um, so hi, there's nowhere for me to pee in the bathrooms or all full and have women. And I just would like somewhere to pee. And they were like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like we really didn't think about it. And just funny for a, a field that's already female, uh, dominating, I guess I come into that even even more female prevalent part of our field where I come in as a man where who does breast and bottle feeding and works in the NICU. And I think some people don't get that sometimes, especially because I like to think of myself as like, I do good in what I do. And uh, I participate in research and I've done a lot for my community and taught a lot of people like I, I, I like to think of myself as like a pretty, pretty good therapist. And I think some people don't understand that sometimes. I always get this kind of, well, do people kind of shy away from you? Cause you're, cause you're a boy in the Nick, you do families. Is that like a turnoff for them? Or are they going to say no? And what I've always said to that was I walk into a room with confidence as a professional who's a specialist and I'm there to, to do a service. So I have never, and I think that I, I, I could be privileged in this aspect. I have never as a male SLP, and I have worked always with kids and outpatient, inpatient rehab, and now in the NICU, I have never had an instance of someone say, oh, is there a female? Or no, I'm not comfortable with this. When I did outpatient and I did breastfeeding evals with women and their husbands, and the husbands would leave the room when their wife breastfed because it was something that you didn't watch, which is another story for a different day. But I never <laughs> had an instance where a husband was like, huh, I'm leaving my wife alone with the man. 
Mm. I mean, maybe they just automatically knew how gay I was and didn't care. But um, it's interesting because I hear so many male SLPs talk about how much they get shit on. And sometimes I'm like, I don't really know about that. Uh, I, I think in some instances, yes, where if you're working in pediatrics, especially in the schools or an outpatient, you're going to have instances where some families just are not comfortable. And I think that that's very relevant. And I think that that's absolutely. But I think some male SLPs also really like to... Uh, somebody responded to an email and they called me a girl. And boy, and like, <laughs> there's what that male SLP group or whatever that I used to be in. Boy, they used to, in the beginning of the times, these male SLPs would be like, oh, how dare they not refer to you by your pronoun? Uh, and how dare they think you were a girl just because you're an SLP? And I'm like, okay, guys, like, d- but get done. <laughs> right, right. The most I ever had that, and I, you know, it's very specific. So early intervention, because you're going into the home. Um, yeah. So that was the main thing. Um, and it happened at least three or four times where I had to switch. They switched, they requested for a different therapist. So I think just that specific setting, yeah, it, it came with it. In the schools, I haven't had as much of that other than like the harassment for being gay. But um, yeah, it is a very interesting, like you're specifically like being in the NICU. Yeah, I don't know any other males that work in the NICU. I know. Yeah, there's not many. There's not many at all. Um, And I love it. I love the NICU. I love the science. I love the environment. It's chaos. And I thrive in chaos. And if you have never experienced what a NICU feels, sounds, and looks like, I suggest that you do at some point so you can know the sheer stress of standing in that unit. <laughs> and it's the very same personality types all work in the NICU. It's people who are there to get a job done and with to no bullshit. And I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Did your program have a lot of like information for you with that? Because when my program, it was like a one day here's pediatric feeding, like, <laughs> and then that's it. Like you got to see Dr. Brown's bottle, you know, that's it. Yep. So I got nothing. So I had to do the work myself in grad school. And I learned as much as I humanly possibly could. Then I got really lucky with one of my placements for my all site was with her name was Stacy. And she was an outpatient therapist who did a lot of feeding. And I begged our coordinator, I was like, I need somebody who who can teach me something about feeding. Like, this is what I went to school for. And I came to school here because it was a medical center. And I thought that I was going to get this. You better give it to me. Yeah. And I got sent to Stacy, And I remember seeing my first picky problem feeder with her. And I was just, because th- that at that point, I, yeah, I learned about dysphagia. And then I got into like, wait, there's even more to this? Like, there's there's more? Like, I love this even more now. And then I was treating true pediatric dysphagia. And I was like, God, this is, this is, I, 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 what a great person to be paired with for my SLP career. And so I say for all the struggles that I had growing up and all the hardships, I got lucky in grad school and in undergrad with being influenced by some great professionals. And they really, really, kicked me in the right direction 
And I owe a lot to them because those were the first instances that I started to really figure out as an SLP who I wanted to be and what I really loved doing. And that's what I love doing. I love to eat and I love to share that with the world. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to show those babies how great eating can be. That's so funny. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask, um, so we got your experience as an SLP and we've gotten your history as, you know, identifying as a gay male. Let's talk a little bit about how those two have combined in your experience and maybe advantages or even hardships that you face as a result of that? Yeah. Uh, For myself, personally, I have a very strong preference of being out and proud at work and everywhere I go. Every job that I've worked, no matter where I've been, I've been myself in the sense of I've also been openly gay. And I personally never had to, I don't by any means go up to people and be like, hey, I'm gay. Or uh, have that, it's it's just as it should be. It's just conversation. It's you're coming up with something in conversation and I say something that then alludes. And you're and so what I have gotten a lot in the hospital is, oh, well, like I didn't know if you were gay and I didn't want to ask and, and this and this and now I know. Um, and so being a gay man in the hospital and a gay SLP, I feel like I don't allow for anything but myself. Like I I don't allow for anything else but my true gay self uh, in the setting. And every instance that I have in conversation, I'm not shy to bring up, oh, I went on a date or something about guys or, oh, like they're really good looking or, you know, just like regular everyday conversations that I'm putting in the information that may not be what people were expecting me to say. So I think for me, I've had a really good experience with being gay in the workplace. I, I have never, which again is something I'm very thankful for. I've never had a situation to where my gayness impacted me negatively that I knew in the hospital. And if you ask any of my students that I've had before, or ask anyone I work with, my personality at work is very known. I am there to do my job. And I'm still a person and I'm very loud and I am very there for myself and for others. So if a patient or if I hear someone being insensitive about a patient for something that they really should be, I'll call you out for it because I think it's important for us to hold other people accountable in the workplace, especially when we're treating other people. So yeah, if I have a coworker who's who's doing, it's hard treating someone with HIV and they're like, oh, I I just don't want to get AIDS or or something along those lines. That's a great moment for me to be like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Like, let's talk about this for a second. Like, what what's going on? And I think that I, like I said, I had really good experiences with being gay in the workplace. My last job asked me to do a presentation for considerations for the treatment of LGBTQ plus pediatric patients in the hospital. And how can we be how can we serve that population better? And so I see the changes that people are trying to make, and I really appreciate it. And I see us as professionals adding to that because that advocacy is also important from a, a professional. It's important that we talk about these issues and bring them up and that they're coming from us. We're the people who should be talking about our community. And I think it's important for us to give back to our workplace in that specific topic. So I have a question about that. So you you 
mentioned earlier that it it's not your job to educate people. Oh, yes. But right. then you just mentioned yeah. that you did this presentation for people. And I guess, where is that line where, you know, it it's, it's okay to educate versus not okay to educate? I think it's, per, I, I like to think that it is also person specific. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a difference between advocating and education without advocacy. So education about how to have gay sex or what, like I, I, what kind of things happen in the bedroom that may not be something that I feel I need to advocate or educate because they're going to learn something from an advocacy standpoint, but the basics and fundamentals of this community and the people who make it up and how you as a professional need to change some of the things you're doing to meet the needs of this community. That's more out of a necessity. I feel like that, that is a necessity of things to do as of educating them about certain aspects of my life. It's not my job to teach you about gay sex or, or, or anything like that, or what the dynamics are. You do your own research that way. If we're closer friends and we really want to break it out, sure. But like the lay person or my work friend, I'm not going to sit there and have this long drawn out conversation with you about that. Now, if I have a coworker who comes to me and is like, Shane, I, I really don't understand what it means to be trans. Like, I, I don't I don't know what that means. I feel like that's a good opportunity for me to come in and to do some advocate, advocacy and advocate for a specific group of people. Um, same for that presentation is to advocate for people in the community. And I don't feel like that I'm just educating for the, like, I, I feel like I'm doing a better job than being like, oh, like go find this information out on your own. But yeah, I think that's where my line is, is what needs to be known and what doesn't need to be known. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tell when someone is almost like tokenizing you, yeah. you know, like you're the token gay, you should be the catch all for all these gay questions. Yeah. So I've, I've been on that end. I have a question about, so you haven't had any negative experiences, you know, being a gay SLP, have you ever had the experience of where people just like overgeneralize or over stereotype you where they're like, oh, that makes sense. Like, yeah, you're an SLP because you're gay. That's a really hard thing to answer because yes, in a general sense, I've gotten that very generally of, oh, you're a boy and you do this. But I really, I, I have such a different experience compared to what I hear from people. I really get that mostly from other SLPs and not other people. It's it's SLPs that I get it more from. It's from our own group of people that I get that from. Uh, oh, you're a male and you do that more than like I, from what, any date that I've been on that I explain what I do, I've never gotten a response that, that was anything close to that. And I think it comes mostly from our SLP <laughs> friends. <laughs> You know, I'm not surprised to hear that just given like how essentially binary our field is and even like heterogeneous it is. Like it's just one size fits everything for our field. And so that kind of leads me to our next question, which is like, what is your hope for our field? Like, (laughs) Like given that you have had these experiences with other SLP, there's clearly a need for something do you have an idea of what that something is? Yeah, I mean, great question, because that's bigger than all of us there. But like, where do we start as a group of people? I think that this is going to be an answer. But 
I think as our program hopefully moves more towards a doctoral program and we can start really integrating some more holistic care within our program to set our clinicians up for more success. But do we need a doctoral program to do that? No, we don't. You're right. We, we do not need. There should absolutely be cultural competencies widespread. And I think that Ashley gets away with some of that now. And I think right now they're getting a little backlash for some of the lack thereof, mm-hmm. especially for what we talked about at the beginning of the last episode, that med SLP group that I, I feel like is can sometimes borderline some very, some very tricky stuff. But I think as a field, of course, you should always educate yourself. It's not always Ash's job to do it. It is Ash's job to make sure that we are doing what we need to do for basic human decency and being aware and competent. Yes, that it is. But you as a person, you got to do the work too, baby. Mm-hmm. No shade, but what about like a DPT? You know, that's like three years. <laughs> just, one more well, just like a middle ground. Uh, well, aren't there SLPD programs out there? Yeah, there are. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anybody yeah. who's gone through it. I want to get grandfathered in. <laughs> like, well, I, I mean, and I, I, you know, I think that the, the, the message of like educating yourself is not just for the SLPs in the room, but for all of us, we, we yeah. all need to educate ourselves to be better. I really believe in that. I think you're on something though, like with a specific to our field, there needs to be a demand for like, especially where, for, if you're thinking about accreditation, right? Like they all go through the AAC, I believe, or ACC, one of those. And they have to, this is part of my grad research. That's the only reason why I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there should be more emphasis on this, you know, that cultural competency piece, especially given that we evaluate (laughs) using these, you know, ideas and these standards. And we're a profession who sees these patients directly. This is a, a large population of people, a high prevalence within our work. So could you imagine someone who, let's say someone who was a voice therapist, who had someone to come in to do some trans voice therapy, and you walk in and you see like a South will rise again flag and or, or something along those lines. It, it's ter- it terrifies me. Sometimes from what I see online from some SLPs, it really terrifies me that some people are working <laughs> with people. Right. I mean, we talked about that a little bit before about how we realized with the election, like how many white women voted for Trump. And we yeah. know the majority of our field is within that. So it's not surprising that this exists. But not that all white women voted for Trump. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank That's you. Uh, no shade to anybody. No shade. But just statistically speaking, there's a, a possibility that this exists. Well, you know, I think in just in my observation that a lot of times people aren't really going to change unless they're they're challenged in some way. And I think I'm just speculating here, but because our field is so homogenous, perhaps it's because they haven't been challenged to expand beyond their white cis female world. That's why I feel like our field needs to really ramp up 
the diversification and really getting not just educating people, but getting people from different backgrounds into the profession because we learn from each other. Every job I've ever had, I've learned from other SLPs. And if you're in a clinic where everyone is white, everyone is female, everyone is straight, you're not challenged to to change your thinking. Right. And so when you get into a situation where you have a client or or some parents who don't fit that mold, then you don't know what to do with yourself or you respond inappropriately, you know, either intentionally or not intentionally. And that drives people away. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you too. So for instance, social media is undeniable that it is everywhere and it is how people have most interactions. What do you think about Asha reprimanding people from things like Facebook posts that are blatantly against, I guess this would fall under their code of ethics? Well, I mean, I think something needs to be done. If it's unethical for us to treat patients like that, like hate speech needs to be called out. I don't know like what an appropriate repercussion for that would be, you know, because if, if someone's engaging in hate speech online and then Asha sees it, is that person going to lose their license? Or are they going to have to have mandatory training? You know, I feel like there does need to be some kind of education and, you know, people need to realize that your online life is not private. Mm-hmm. And you can't say whatever you feel like. Right. Not without consequence. With, but not without consequence, of course, yes. Yeah. I think that was a really good point about what should happen because, I mean, you do Medicaid fraud, they put you on blast for action. <laughs> They're like, here are all the people who have violated their, you know, like you can look those up. Yeah. Uh, so not that we should do that, but I'm like, there needs to be some level of accountability, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that you're right. actually making a very strong stance on something. Uh, we need like the shade uh, sound, the the rattlesnake sound or something. But yeah, because that's action, right? Yeah. Um, it's a call to action. So we would need Asha to make a stance on, you know, where they're at with that. I don't know how we call for that, to be honest. Um, so, I think you know, talking about it first is a good start. Like bringing the awareness of that there needs to be something like this. Right. I mean, we always get back, and maybe it's because we're, it's our podcast, but we always talk about needing to diversify our field. Right? <laughs> and, and we always come back to that, but it's just so true. Right. And I'm glad that there are other people who see that and value that, you know, and if we maybe get enough word out there, that'll lead to it. But it's so much more than just the LGBTQ community. You know, it's people of color, it's poverty, it's, you know, there's so many barriers to access uh, for our field. I would even venture to say, at least for me, it was very like coincidental that I fell into this field. It wasn't something that I sought out. I would be curious to see if there are other males or other, you know, people of color like, yeah, I grew up wanting to be a speech therapist. I want to know if anyone ever grew up thinking they wanted to be a speech therapist. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you know, you're in kindergarten and your teacher tells you to draw what you want to be when you grow right. up and you draw a speech therapist. Right, right. <laughs> I want to meet that kid, please. 
it wasn't me. So I don't, somebody else had to do it. Right. I sure didn't inspire any children <laughs> to do my job. <laughs> they just, um, okay, cool. So, you know, that's kind of where your hopes are for our field. Um, and it just kind of sounds like more hopes for the world as well, which is great. You know, and that's the thing. So you can't separate those two. What's happening outside? Yeah. You can't just be like, we're in our little speech therapy bubble. It's happening outside should reflect because of the populations we serve. It needs to reflect the times. And so that's right. You got to do the work. You got to update. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we also like to ask all of our proud professionals, what does being a proud professional mean to you? Kind of going back, I would say being unapologetically your truest self. Be who you want to be and project who you want to be out into the world. That's what it means for my me personally to be a proud professional is to be every aspect that I am at all time, no matter who's listening and who's watching. Nice. I love that. Do you ever feel like your professionalism is called into question because of how unapologetically you are yourself? I think so. And I don't give a fuck. So it's, it's like, <laughs> it's, I, I really don't. Like, if you don't think that, I don't care. Like, what you think about my, like, I do my job and I do it well. And if you want to fight about it, then like, let's fight. Like, let's throw hands. But mm-hmm. yeah, like, do what you want. Like, sure, whatever you think, it's not going to impact me. I know what I do is good. And that's that at the end of the day. It, it's, it doesn't matter what they think. What is that survey that they do for patients like that stay? Uh, what's it called? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, the sur- like a satisfaction but, survey? Yeah. Like your, oh, how okay. your provider was treating you. And I'm like, I know there's a survey because I've seen it. Um, but like, could you imagine if they're like, he's too gay? Very <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, Queer. And... <laughs> I think it, it, it's so funny because when I, my students, it's just so funny because I've had, I've had over 10 students over the years, well, closer to like 15 or so. And it's, it's hilarious when they meet me and what, how different I am at a patient's bedside. And then when we're not at the patient's bedside, it's so funny because even though I say like, I'm, I'm who I am, I could still put on a face of, I'm pleasant just because I am like, I'm gay, but pleasant versus I'm not pleasant and gay outside of that. But it's still though, like no matter, I do what I need to do in my, my workplace to get what I have to do done. And my gayness shouldn't impact that. And nobody else should think it impacts it either. I'm low-key Googling it right now. So go ahead. What what do you, you're, you're Googling things? I want to know what the survey is called, but I can't find it anyway. Patient satisfaction survey? Something. I think it, yeah. it, it depends on the company that they get the survey through. So there's like different companies. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm going to stop looking in the middle of our podcast, but go ahead now. <laughs> get off the internet, Hector. Um, I like to the internet. <laughs> what advice would you give to new baby SLPs coming into the field? You are just as important and worth just as much as your therapy counterparts. You have to demand the time, you have to demand the space, and you have to demand the needs. If you do not demand it, you will not be treated as equal. Period. Again, we have to do the work. 
complaining about us being uh, and sending memes to each other about how much people appreciate or get paid PT and OT. That's because you're not doing the job to say, I'm worth it. I'm, I am the same as them. So my advice to you is go in guns a blazing. You are just as important, if not more at times than those people, than your other counterparts. You are equal and you have to do the work. Ask for raises. Counter your offers at jobs. If you want to make money, you got to talk, talk. Is that good advice? I mean, I'm scared to take it, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, what I hear is be a self-advocate in all areas of your work. Be ready to self-advocate as a queer person. Be ready to self-advocate as a professional and know your worth. You know, don't let the 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 things that people say and do keep you from knowing your own self-worth. Would would you say that I've I've summarized it correctly? Yes, with a with a small hint of my soapbox of I feel as a profession we don't always do a so taking just the generalized profession we don't do a good job of advocating for our professional and how our profession and how important it is. If you don't think your profession is important, no one else will. You know where I think some of that comes from, quite honestly, is because we're mainly a female profession and women are taught not to advocate for themselves. Women are taught to be grateful for any opportunity that they're offered and they should never ask for more. I think as women, we're trained to think that way. And it's something that I know I still have to fight against, you know, this training that that as a woman in this world, you know, I've been told I should just be grateful for the opportunity and we're not taught to self-advocate. Right. This makes sense. <laughs> I'm like, it's the, the gears are turning in my head. <laughs> <laughs> we need a little, we need like little thinking music, like do, 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 do. There's also this expectation that people are just going to come to it on their own terms. You know, they're going to be able to take our perspective into account at some point if we wait it out you know like there's almost like that you want to give people the benefit of the doubt without rocking the boat you know and so if you keep waiting and waiting other people are going to keep getting lower case loads they're going to be getting better pay <laughs> so i get what you're saying but it's so it's it's a bigger systemic issue clearly yeah which it brings it literally all full circle for us of Okay, if we diversify our field in multiple and and always possible, mm -hmm. then we can make more money. That's problem solved, guys. I, I I cracked the code. That's it. Wow, all in like the span of an hour. <laughs> right. That's it. Yeah. Problem solved. I know that you've awesome. been trying to solve this problem on the podcast. Well, guess what? It's solved. You're welcome. The podcast is now done. <laughs> Okay. Excellent. Well, 13 episodes. Lucky number 13. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. This would be it. Is Our this we're 13 done. or 14? 13. <gasps> I don't know. Oh, no, I lied. It's 14. Oh, I'm wrong. <laughs> Lucky 14. Oh, no, am I actually 15? <laughs> anyway. I don't know. <laughs> with that in mind, any last words? And also tell everybody, you know, how they can reach you for more info if they want to learn more about. NICU feeding, um, or just about you. Sure. 
Yeah. And we, we talked about how much I like my separate work and personal life. Uh, so if you get on my, please like follow me on Instagram. Cause I do post some work stuff, but I also am just like a person that like, like enjoys things. And so my Instagram, feel free to follow me. It's at S K I M B one and same for Facebook. But if you do have questions, if you're wanting to get into the NICU or if you're wanting some advice, I love it. Like, please like contact me, send me a message on Instagram. Feel free to email me skimbl1 at gmail.com. I will be happy to talk to anyone. I do love talking about the SLP life to an extent, but I also enjoy my personal life. Don't you teach like circus arts? Oh, yes. I also, uh, the <laughs> pandemic has kind of uh, done some things with that. But yes, I, I also am an aerial instructor, uh, an aerial silks instructor. Sweet. <laughs> so I do a little a bit of circus on the side for fun. Very, very just for fun. Like I, I performed for the first time last Christmas at a Christmas show. It's called Kinky Circus. <laughs> Sorry. So I did up. a performance. And I did a Christmas performance. Uh, the theme was Naughty or Nice. And so I was um, uh, the Naughty Grant who kills Santa. And I did a song. And I did, uh, I did a, a, an, a, a Silks number to Santa Baby while I was dressed as the Grinch. It was great. Uh, I love it. I love I'll videos. Yeah. I'll have to send the videos. It's it's good. It's good awesome. stuff. Well, all right then. Thanks again, Shane, for joining us. Thank you. Yes. Thank you too. This has been so much fun. It has. This has been we've been together for uh five, six, seven for three hours now, and it really does feel like I'm like, wait, how did we talk about three hours of stuff? That's <laughs> why <laughs> right, you can't date another SLP. <laughs> I'm like, I'm tired, but we can't stop. <laughs> All three of us can't stop talking. <laughs> stop maintaining this. <laughs> okay, I think that's about it. All right, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Queer SLP. Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at thequeerslp. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.